Coming up on Tech Nation, now that so many of us unexpectedly started working from home, how much of a company can be digital and how much must be physical? Robert Siegel joins me to talk about the Brains and Brawn Company, how leading organizations blend the best of digital and physical. Then you may have first heard of cytokine storms with reference to COVID, but in fact, they can be caused by many conditions. Jim Joyce, the CEO of San Diego's Segan Therapeutics, talks about their efforts to intervene quickly with all manner of cytokine storms. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2013, I spoke with Harvard psychology professor Mazarin Banerjee about her book, Blind Spot, Hidden Biases in Good People. Don't think you have any hidden biases? Hint, they're hidden. Professor Banerjee credits her interest in biased research to the work of Yale professor Marsha Johnson, who measured unconscious bias in people suffering from amnesia. It's exactly work like that that got me interested in this topic. Uh, I did not come to the study of unconscious bias by worrying about things like race and gender and so on. I was busy as a graduate student studying human memory. And when I was uh, in the early 1980s doing that kind of work, a little revolution was happening in the field of memory. People had begun to discover that for a hundred years, psychologists had measured memory by simply asking people to report back on some prior episode. They would say, you know, can you remember where you lived when you were five years old? Or what did you eat for breakfast? All of these are very conscious, deliberate ways of reaching back into our minds to pull out some information from the past. And Amnesic patients really don't have any of it um, in, in different forms. Uh, the severely amnesic ones really can't even remember the face of a doctor that they might see uh, every day. Um, and, and yet they seemed to remember certain things. And that was, for me, a revelation because if that was the case, not only in amnesic patients but later shown to be true in all of us, um, then what would that say for how we go about remembering our attitudes? Do I even know what my preference is? Uh, maybe I don't know what it is. And that, that was, so Marsha Johnson's study was one of, of, of several studies that got us thinking about uh, how you can both know and not know something in the same mind. So here's what she does that's so interesting. She gave people amnesic patients and then a control sample of people who had more intact memory. Uh, she gives them faces of people to look at, and with each face, she presents a little description of this person. This person was in the Naval Academy and received an award, or this person was in the Air Force and, and had to be dishonorably discharged. Let's just take those two as examples. Well, later, when you ask amnesic patients, tell me, when you look at this face, can you tell me anything about this person? They would say, absolutely not. I don't even remember seeing this face before. And yet, if you said to them, look at this face and tell me, is this person a good person? 
or is this person a bad person? And it turns out that with close to 100% accuracy, if you had said awarded a medal for, some, for, for, for bravery versus dishonorably discharged, they would, with close to 100% accuracy, say good or bad accurately. Now, that meant that something did remain in their minds, and it was an important piece of information. It was whether to remember that this was somebody to approach or avoid in the future, even though they had zero recollection for the face. You ask yourself, why at the end of a 30-minute interview do I love this person so much? Or why do I find myself being agitated by this person? And you might ask yourself if something that happened in the first few moments set you up on a path whereby all you're doing is simply reinforcing the first impression that you had formed. And at the end of 30 minutes, all you've done is made sure that you have evidence for that very first feeling that you had. This archive Technation interview features Harvard professor Mazarin Banerjee and her book, Blind Spot, Hidden Biases of Good People. Professor Banerjee continues to study thinking and feeling as they unfold in social contexts with a focus on mental systems that operate in implicit or unconscious mode. Her courses include The Nature of Prejudice and the Social Mind. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Silicon Valley tech investor and Stanford lecturer Robert Siegel examines both the brains you need to make digital work well and the brawn you need to be successful. He's here to talk about how leading organizations blend the best of physical and digital. Then Jim Joyce, the CEO of Seekin Therapeutics in San Diego, talks about their efforts to filter out the bad actors in patients experiencing a cytokine storm. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now... Rob Siegel. Rob, welcome to Tech Nation. Thanks, Mara. It's great to be here. You know, if the COVID pandemic has done anything, it's separated those jobs which can be done in some fashion remotely or digitally, and those jobs which must be in person, you must be physically present. But expediency aside, it's really not that simple. Yeah, it's interesting because I think every product and service that will be delivered will be connected over the following decade. And so even what you do as an instructor or as a member of KQED or what I might do as a venture capitalist or as an instructor at Stanford, that's pretty easy to understand how those jobs will be connected. But we'll see that you know, the delivery of goods and services to our homes and restaurants, et cetera, will increasingly have a digital component. And so I think you're going to see this blending of digital and physical, and that's going to be with us for at least the next decade or two. Now, you organize your book in two parts. First, an abbreviated map of mostly the brain, left brain, right brain, the amygdala as examples, and then brawn, you know, hands, muscles, stamina. Why this organization? 
Well, in my two of my courses at the Graduate School of Business, the Industrialist Dilemma and Systems Leadership, we studied about 70 companies over the last seven years that have been combining digital and physical in various capacities. Some of them were incumbents like Ford or Target or even Kaiser Permanente. And we also studied disruptors. It could be Lyft or 23andMe uh, or Everlywell. Saw some really interesting companies across a wide variety of sectors. And we found the ones that were winning, the ones that were having the most success were combining digital and physical. And so we tried to drill down and really look and see, well, what were the attributes of digital and physical that they really kind of, you know, brought inside? And so on the, on the, what do we call the brainy attributes, kind of the digital side, you know, the left hemisphere using analytics, the right hemisphere, creativity, uh, the amygdala for understanding the empathy for their employees, their customers, their ecosystem, the prefrontal cortex for how they manage risk, and finally the inner ear for how they balanced what they did internally and where they partnered. But there was also a physical component to all of these companies, right? There was, as you talked about, right? We have the spine for logistics, for getting goods and services to people, hands, the craft of making things, actual manufacturing matters, no matter where in the world you'll do it. Speaking of which muscles, how do you operate at scale on a global basis? Uh, Hand-eye coordination, you know, how do you kind of drive and shape an ecosystem to get what you want to have happen and stamina surviving over time? And so those 10 attributes, five digital, five physical, really kind of exemplified you know, the key important things that we saw to winning organizations over the last seven years. Well, certainly everybody has heard about this left brain, right brain, you know, analytic versus creativity. Is one more important than the other? No, I think actually they're all important. And, and I think that was kind of really what struck us. When we started the courses, we had this thesis, right, that we would have kind of these incumbent dinosaurs who would come in and most of them would be dying off and a few of them would do okay. And then we'd bring in those disruptors who were changing everything and boy, we couldn't have been more wrong. We found that the winning companies were really, really good at both digital and physical. And I think one of our takeaways was that incumbents are not doomed and disruptors are not ordained. Now, no company is going to be good on all 10 attributes. You know, generally you'll find a company, the really successful ones will be good at seven, eight or nine, but even where they're weaker, they'll find ways to work with other organizations to help complement their weaknesses. And I think that was kind of the key learning for us is it's not that you, you know, one's more important than the other, it's that they all matter. And the question is, how will you be successful in how you, you know, succeed across those 10 different attributes. Now, you've mentioned the amygdala. This is sort of the source of empathy and, and emotion and feeling. Are we really talking about empathy in business school these days? Actually, quite frequently, at least we are at Stanford. You know, it's, a, it's a big part of the curriculum, you know, as we train the students, you know, to make sure that they are aware of what's happening in their workforce. You know, we make sure they understand what's happening with their customers. It happens in product design. It happens in how you organize your company. You know, and so it's a big part of the discussion of, of and by the way, even mental health comes up repeatedly, you know, as, as, as an issue for the labor force. And we've seen it because of the pandemic. You know, one of the, the best leaders that I ever saw who really kind of did great empathy was Bernard Tyson, the former CEO of Kaiser Permanente. You know, Bernard would come into the class and he'd start talking to the students and he would talk about how he'd like to spend a day a month watching his doctors and his nurses work, just watching them and understanding what was happening from their perspective, talking to patients. Uh, he even talked about empathy for the government government, which I thought was really interesting, you know, because Bernard would have to go to Washington. What? Yes. What? Well, because Bernard <laughs> would talk about how, how the government was, you know, his largest payer, as well as regulates everything that they do and 
delivering health care. And so when he would go to Washington, whether he was talking to Democrats or Republicans, no matter what his personal political views were, he looked at the people on the other side of the table as representing his members, no matter what side of the political aisle those people were on. So he, he always had conversations with people in Washington seeking to understand, you know, the, this representative, this senator, uh, this president is representing people who voted for them. And those are my members and my customers. And I've got to listen very closely to, you know, what they're saying and what they're trying to get accomplished. And I found him to be one of the most amazing leaders I've ever had the privilege of getting to know and, and work with. It's, a, you know, he, he passed away way too suddenly. It was a real shame when we lost him. This is really an interesting proposition. When you talk about a health care system, Kaiser Permanente, um, because you say, gee, that's where brain and brawn have to both be present. You can't do a health care system completely remotely, certainly not a, a medical center, a, a hospital. An example you talk about in the book is UCSF Health, University of California, San Francisco Health. And you talk about its entire ecosystem. What is UCSF Health and what is its ecosystem? You know, it was fascinating when we had the president of UCSF come to, to Stanford. What he talked about was all of the various you know, people that he had to deal with, right? So he's a member of the University of California education system. So there's research that goes on. There's, you know, doctors and nurses. They're a member of the community. They're one of the largest, you know, hospital providers in the city of San Francisco. There's technology providers that are trying to sell to them. Um, there's philanthropy and fundraising. And so it's just the, the complexity of all of the forces that act and drive and shape, you know, UCSF were way more complex than anything I think any of us realize. You think of a, a hospital as a place where somebody goes if they're sick and they get treatment, maybe surgery, whatever it is. Yeah. And it was way more complex than that. And so you know, one of the things that we talk about is this notion of systems leadership. And this idea of systems leadership is that you have the ability to see how things and forces interact with each other inside of a company or even between your company and other, you know, entities outside of your company. And with UCSF, it was such a complex dynamic of all these big forces that would drive and shape just the way, you know, people could get treated and get their health care, you know, from technology to, to you know, um, unions, to nurses, you know, to dealing with the president of the Univers University of California system. It was just an amazing thing to see what the ecosystem, you know, did to UCSF. And most importantly, how the leadership team needed to drive and shape their, ecosystem to get what they wanted in a way that would serve their customers best. And so that's one of the things that we talk about is trying to understand, you know, in companies today, when everything's connected, you're interacting with so many different constituents. Do you understand how to drive and shape all of those forces outside of your company so that you can be effective in delivering whatever it is you're choosing to deliver? Well, you don't just talk about new companies. You talk about well-known existing companies who have been in existence for some time. For instance, John Deere, the tractor company. Why are they interesting? Well, when we think of John Deere, we think of tractors and farmers. And that doesn't sound like a very tech forward uh, perspective, especially from sitting here at the heart of Silicon Valley. And yet John Deere has been doing autonomous driving of tractors for well over a decade. You know, we talk about autonomous cars and autonomous vehicles. Deere's been doing this for a long time. Deere's been very involved in what we might call the Internet of Things, where you've got sensors all over you know, the tractors. And they know where all of their hardware is within like three centimeters all over the world. 
through a satellite network that talks to all of these devices. So Deere's constantly looking about bringing in new technologies into these very kind of old school mainline devices that we call tractors, right? and then trying to make sure that can the tractors be more effective? How can technology make things more effective? And it's not just the mechanical side of it, there's the digital side that gives data that helps them understand not only how the health of the machine is doing, but how the health of the crops are doing. So Sam Allen, who was the former CEO, when he came to visit, really painted a story for the students that was far more digitally advanced than I think most people realized. Well, you know, we've always talked about in recent years, the Internet of Things. I never thought about the Internet of Tractors. The Internet of Tractors <laughs> is a thing. That's really what the T stands for in IoT. <laughs> <laughs> and boy, talk about being in a food chain. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Really, really interesting. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Robert Siegel, a well-known tech investor in Silicon Valley. He teaches strategy and innovation at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. You may have read his work in the Harvard Business Review and the California Management Review. He's here today with the Brains and Brawn Company, how leading organizations blend the best of digital and physical. Well, let's talk about Tesla. Does Elon Musk actually work with anyone but himself? I'm just kind of asking that question on the side. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Elon Musk is, is a truly amazing business leader, right? You see someone like that once every thousand years or hundred years, whatever it is. Let's face it, the dude lands rockets on barges in the middle of the ocean, and that's pretty cool, Moira. But the flip side, if we look at Tesla, oftentimes where I think we can emulate certain things that they do is how they blend digital and physical together in the delivery of vehicles. And we see how that's very different, you know, versus the kind of the traditional automotive companies. But Tesla has done something that I think most companies can't do. Tesla has taken a very vertically oriented approach where they actually do most of the things themselves from the hardware to the software, to the making of the vehicle, to the distribution. And so that's really kind of a unique thing. Most companies today, be they startups or be they disruptors, need to figure figure out in a world that blends digital and physical, what are they going to do themselves and where are they going to partner? So Tesla's world class in terms of what they've been able to accomplish in the last decade and kind of transforming the mobility industry. But to some ways, we can't learn from all of the lessons from Tesla. This idea of digital first to talk to your customers and how you engage with the customers, they're great at that. They're probably best in the world at that in the mobility industry. But if a company says that they're going to try and do everything the way Tesla has done and not partner with as many companies, I think that's kind of unique to Elon. And I think that's just because he's such a unique leader. So I think studying him in that way, it's interesting, but I don't think that's something that most business leaders can emulate. When the pandemic set in economically, there were a number of companies, startup companies, they say, oh, well, that's it. It's too bad you started up then. Bad timing. And then other companies, they gained traction. They got an advantage almost during the pandemic. The need for that, the demand grew. One of those is Instacart. Yeah, Instacart kind of talk about being in the right place at the right time. You know, they had this interesting business delivering groceries through an app on our phone so we you know, don't have to go to grocery stores. It would be much more convenient. And when we were all locked in our houses, we still needed to eat, Moira. And so like the the 
speed with which their business accelerated really was something the likes of which nobody could have predicted. Now, I would argue that they were able to take advantage of it because of all the work they had done before. Uh, when we had the founder and now chairman of Purva Meta uh, visit, he talked a lot about how he looked at his business as a four-sided market. You had uh, people like us, the customers who buy the product, the shoppers, the people who go into the stores to get the goods that we want to buy. You had the grocery stores, the grocery stores themselves who provide the goods that the, the shoppers pick up. And then finally, the CPG companies, the consumer product companies, the consumer packaged good companies, because they want to get data on who's buying what, where are they buying it. And all of that infrastructure was in place that when the pandemic hit, like it became something that was a like to have to a have to have for so many people, because maybe a lot of people couldn't go to grocery stores or they were concerned about going out because of their health, because of the virality of the pandemic. And so they were just well positioned at the right time. Another great example of that is Target. You know, Target had, you know, a combination of you could buy your groceries online and do your shopping online and then drive to the store and have it delivered right to the car. You know, they were ready for it so that when the pandemic hit, their business just really ramped up and accelerated. And in those examples, you see a, a you know, a disruptor who was like kind of got fortunate, if you will, because of the pandemic and an incumbent who was also able to take advantage of it because both companies had blended digital and physical. And that's what really customers needed. Both the old and the new. Both dogs got up, had had their tricks in line. I like it. There you go. <laughs> I like it. Of course, one of the things that, that just burst during the pandemic were people, after they finished their meal, looking around saying, well, we, could, we really need to spruce this place up. Home Depot just took off. Yeah, it's, you know, Craig Miniar, the CEO of Home Depot is an amazing leader. And, and when he visited us, one of the things that, that he talked about was don't fight the inevitable. Right. And so if you own a physical retail type of store, no matter what type it is, one of the things that you have to acknowledge is that customers want to buy through their computers and through their phones. Like e-commerce is a fact of life. And so the way Home Depot thought about it is how could they blend the two together? And they realized the good news is a kitchen sink, Mara, does not ship well through Amazon Prime. Right. You still actually want to go pick it up and see it. But people might be shopping for it through the interface of their computer screen or of their phone. So what they did is they invested in the infrastructure of logistics. They put a bunch of regional distribution centers all around the United States, all that were very, very close to the retail stores. And so what that allowed them to do is that if a customer bought from their computer or bought from their phone, they could say to the customer, you can pick it up in the store in within three hours. And so Home Depot like got this advantage again we were all sitting around and said hey we need a coat of paint around here or like hey maybe i need some new furniture for the backyard since i'm not going anywhere and all of a sudden everybody started redoing their house they were able to deliver that because they had the infrastructure laid out and ready to go and so you know logistics which is one of these things that isn't very sexy and doesn't get you on the cover of fortune magazine was really what allowed home depot to thrive during you know the pandemic and so you know they and they had all of this ready to go all the Systems were ready to go. The people were trained. And all of a sudden, when people started to shop online, they were ready to take advantage of the opportunity. I went to drop off uh, an envelope uh, of some sort. I don't I actually don't write a lot of checks or letters. Nothing goes in the mail much any day. But but at any rate, I went and this is the height of the pandemic. I went. I had to mail this thing. So I I ran to our, my local uh, post office, you know, parked right in front. There were a bunch of mailboxes, jumped out threw it in, got back in my car, and what was parked in front of me was a big postal truck. 
you know, that was just jammed to the brim. And the fellow had actually, the postal worker had actually just rolled that big, you know, rolling door up at the back. Right. Could see it. Half of them were boxes of just nondescript. The other half were Amazon Prime. I thought to myself, Amazon Prime must be keeping the Postal Service alive. No company best shows the benefits of brains and brawn than Amazon right now. It's just incredible. And and if you look at Amazon, not only all the shopping that we do uh, through their app and through their web interface, but what they have invested in logistics and infrastructure became actually, um, one could argue it was almost a utility or a public good for a big chunk of our population, the ability to get whatever we needed to buy. And in fact, when Amazon ran out of toilet paper, we all panicked because, oh my God, now I actually have to go to a store and even then I'm going to have to hunt around from store to store. I can't get it on Amazon. And you the funny thing is, I find that with my shopping patterns, I don't even go to the local pharmacy store if I need deodorant or skin lotion. It's just easier to buy it on Amazon because it's going to be delivered. And half the time I go to the you know the pharmacy or the, the CVS or whatever, just sometimes it's sold out and I don't get what I want. And so during the pandemic, again, Amazon became something that we needed, that everybody kind of you know we got used to what we had done before as a convenience, switched to being a necessity. And what will be very interesting is as we get to the other side of the pandemic, right, over the next couple of years, and we find whatever the new normal is, it'll be interesting to see which of these behaviors stick with us. How much of we will say, well, look, this is just more convenient, so I'm going to continue shopping this way, or I'll continue consuming media. Maybe, I don't know, are we going to go back to the movies or not? Unclear. Right. So we're going to see how a lot of these things will be changing about how our behaviors are there. And Amazon's in the center of everything, right? Between, you know, Prime Video, you know, Amazon Prime, which we, you know, it's crazy the number of U.S. households that have Amazon Prime. It's kind of up there with fire on the wheel, you know, in terms of kind of an invention that's impacted society. Uh, and I think, you know, as we get to the other side of the pandemic, I think Amazon is very well positioned. We'll see what happens with the government and regulation and w- what goes on with stuff like that. But Amazon is an organization that is very well positioned. Oh, by the way, let's not forget, you know, all of our smart speakers that use Alexa. And by the way, now that I said her name, the blue light just came on to my right because, you know, she's listening. All the AI bots listen to Tech Nation. <laughs> she listens to Tech Nation and you can hear Tech Nation on Alexa. It's just ask her. Yeah. And to your point earlier about Home Depot, uh, you actually, well, I want it in three hours. Yeah, I want it now. And Amazon, well, I know it's coming. When is it coming? And it's telling you, well, if you order it in the next three hours, one minute, 12 hours, you can get it tomorrow morning or tomorrow afternoon. It's really feeding into our ability to get things, you know, as opposed to having to run out to the store if we need it. How much of that do you think is going to stick with us? I think where it's convenient, it will stick. And so in no matter what we do, healthcare, shopping, some of these things we're going to figure out are better. And let me give a healthcare example. Uh, 12 years ago, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer and I had a thyroidectomy. And every year I go to see my endocrinologist and she, you know, checks me out to make sure that everything's okay. And I get an ultrasound done and I get a blood draw done. And it's just part of my staying healthy and staying on top of, of my health to make sure everything's okay. And then I go and see her, you know, and she, you know, checks out my neck and touches me and every, make sure that all of my reactions are okay. Um, and we talk about my medication and the end, and the end. Well, what's interesting is when the pandemic started, I had just had my ultrasound and my blood draw, but my annual checkup with with my doctor got moved to a virtual one, right? And so we did it on video. And so the question is, 
like we were able to get done in 10 minutes, like, you know, 15 minutes of back and forth through video. What normally would have taken me, you know, 20 minutes to drive to the doctor's office park, 15 minutes to walk in, wait, get called in, spend 30 minutes with her leave. You know, what, what, what had previously been a 90 minute exercise had become really a 15 minute exercise. And so on a future basis, as long as my numbers look good for my blood draws and my ultrasound looks okay, the images look okay. I think we will start doing some of the things that, that we started doing during the pandemic because people will realize that, that it's easier and more convenient. I've been speaking with Robert Siegel, the author of The Brains and Brawn Company, how leading organizations blend the best of digital and physical. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, Jim Joyce, the co-founder and CEO of Segan Therapeutics. They're looking to intervene in cytokine storms. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Robert Siegel, the author of The Brains and Brawn Company. I wondered if so many of our interactions would remain digital when the pandemic is over. Now, it won't be for everything because, Moira, we're a social species. Like, I got to tell you, in June, the one month that the pandemic wasn't bad, I had to go to Europe for a business trip. For I know it was awesome. And we spent four days together as a team. You know, I'm on the, the board of a company over there. We were more effective in these four days than we had been in the previous 18 months. And it was very clear to us the ability for, uh, you know, how we were able to communicate really dig deeply into topics was so much better than just being on Zoom. And so I think, you know, what will happen is we will still have, you know, kind of in-person experiences, but will I fly to Europe once a quarter like I used to, or will it be twice a year? Like we'll find out, we'll do those trade-offs to figure out where's that blend of digital and physical that will make the companies more efficient and more effective. Now, one last uh, point in your book, uh, stamina. 
uh, it's always a favorite with me. Talk about stamina. You know how how do you last a long time? How do you keep going? Uh, Netflix perhaps gets the prize for re- reinventing itself multiple times. But can every company do this? Or 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 perhaps let me just change that question a bit. What makes a company stall? I think it's it starts with culture and mindset. So Netflix, if you think about what they did, you know, they went from kind of DVD delivery to streaming video to creating content. And they kind of kept redefining who they were and the value proposition that they were delivering for the customers. And so I think when a company stalls, it's not because the leaders are stupid. In fact, on the contrary, it's the leaders are usually quite smart. They have become quite good and they have been rewarded, you know, with career advancements and financially as they move up in the organization for doing whatever worked and being successful at it and doing it over and over and over again. And then what happens is the world changes. And I think when companies aren't aware of what's happening, you know, when the world is changing, that's when they get into trouble. Uh, And so Netflix is a great example of one that really has, at least over the last two decades, continued to reinvent itself. One that we studied very intensely was Johnson & Johnson. Uh, And J&J, which has been around for, you know, well over 100 years, the attributes that I found of J&J and other companies that have survived over time, the first was they kind of know their North Star. And so it's funny with J&J, the grandson of one of the founders created the famous Johnson & Johnson credo. And when you walk into any J&J building, you see the credo up on a wall. And it talks about who do they serve and in what order. And the J&J credo talks about first it's the patients, right? You know, the people who they treat. Then it's the doctors and nurses. Then it's the communities. And finally, it's shareholders. And so, you know, while Johnson & Johnson is a very large, successful commercial organization, the credo kind of first and foremost sets the tone for all of the employees. When you walk in, you know who you serve and in what order. And then they've done other things that have, have, I think, been very successful for allowing them to help think and how they process things. They've got a constant set of multiple ways that they innovate. Right. So they've got, you know, a venture capital arm. They've got skunk works arm. They've got all of these things they do that are constantly trying to figure out new ways to invent things. And they'll also acquire outside technologies if that's needed to do. So they really have this mindset of, you know, we need to constantly be changing and evolving because, you know, technology is changing and evolving. Our customers are changing and evolving. And it's, it's as much a mindset as anything. And by the way, Mara, Humans hate change. (laughs) Most human beings do not. We say embrace change, and that's such Silicon Valley BS. Like, yes, you have to do it, but you also need to understand that most people don't like change. And so how, as a leader, do you put that into the company, the ethos that it's okay to try change? And by the way, when you're going to try new things, some of them aren't going to work out and how you're not going to get punished if you try something that doesn't work as long as you learn from it. And then you, you know, you're able to be successful the next time. So I think that you look for stamina, like Netflix is, is, is a company that I'm really interested in. It's done a great job the first two decades. How will they do going forward? But even some of our longer standing incumbent organizations, they've done some best practices that disruptors can learn from. And and some of our listeners haven't lived through all the generations of Netflix. You know, now we know what Netflix is. Oh, my goodness, it's a big producer. It's a channel. It's a this, it's a that. And uh, it started out mailing uh, DVDs to people. In the little red envelope. And then you could get some more when you send them back. And and, uh, they were, you know, they were in the stores. They were, you know, and then what happened to those? And then DVDs, whatever happens, 
you know, they were like, okay, we're going to keep, we're going to be a little ahead of that technology. And, you know, they could have made some really bad bets. They probably did do some, and we don't know about them. But what really truly strikes me about what you're talking about, having gone through this break, if you will, uh, with the pandemic, whether you were employed or not, whether you were thinking of doing something and changing, I think it's caused us all to reflect, what am I really doing? Where should I go from here? Have I, you know, what stamina do I have? If I have to redefine who I am in the world, you know, who am I and how do I get my mojo back? How do I do that? <laughs> you know, redefining ourselves is a thing that we need to do constantly. Um, and, and, you know, Silicon Valley has been predicated on what, what's often referred to the, the Austrian economist, Joseph Schumpeter, talked about creative destruction, that we invent new things to destroy what came before. And that's actually how we evolve and grow as a society and, and, and in business. Uh, but that's also true for us as individuals. And so as leaders, we need to like ask ourselves, what are we doing to grow and change? And the best example of this that I ever saw was Katrina Lake. Katrina is the chairman and founder of Stitch Fix. And she asks her you know, team every year, if you were hiring for your job today, would you hire yourself? Like, and when you ask that in a room full of executives, you've never seen so many people lose color in their faces, <laughs> right? Because it's one of those things where you have to ask yourself, have I stayed current? And I think there's kind of, you have to have a natural curiosity to understanding what's happening outside of the four walls of your company. And you have to have that desire to learn new things. But I'm lucky I get to teach men and women who come from all over the world and they're you know, between the ages of 25 and 40. And I get to learn from them with a fresh set of eyes, how they look at the opportunities and the ways technology can create business opportunities and social opportunities. And so I think you have to have that mindset that not only are you willing to learn new things, but that you enjoy learning new things and you enjoy kind of getting rid of what you've been doing before and embracing, trying new ways to accomplish certain objectives. It's kind of like crustaceans, Moira. Crustaceans, you know, they have to actually molt their shells in order to grow. If you think about that, they can't grow without molting their shells. And I think that's a lot like humans. We have to sometimes let go about that which that we've built around us, that which has protected us, so that we can grow and try new things. And when you go through that, it's scarier. And all of a sudden, you've got to say, I'm not the expert anymore. I'm a rookie. And that's very, very hard for senior leaders. But actually, it can be very liberating because sometimes you can let go of the past. You might see new things and new opportunities right in front of you. Now, I have to ask you one last question. We were all drawn to former Intel CEO Andy Grove's book, Only the Paranoid Survive. And I understand that you are the lead researcher for that book. What does that mean? It means that I had just graduated from Stanford at the age of 26 and I went to work for Intel. And when I joined, right after I joined, we had a really big technical and PR crisis that was called the Pentium flaw, where we had a bug in one of our uh, chips and it cost us a half a billion dollars uh, to fix. And Andy decided to write a book about it. And he called me up and uh, basically I'm sitting in my cubicle one day and he says, Robert, come to my office. And so I run up to his cubicle and he basically says he wants to write a book about what we went through. And it's a lot of the themes that he had taught. He was on a lecturer at the Graduate School of Business with Professor Robert Bergelman. Uh, and 
in that course, which I had taken uh, a lot of the themes from the course he wanted to put into the book. And so I basically spent a year uh, doing all of his research for all the footnotes in the back of the book, uh, which was an amazing experience for a wet behind the ears, 26 year old snot nosed kid who knew nothing. Uh, and it was, you know, and Andy was at the height of his power. Intel was the Facebook and Google of its day in the, at that time. And Andy was, I think, one of the greatest business leaders of the 20th century. I think more importantly, Andy to me and to those of us who had the privilege of knowing him, he was so much more than just a great business leader. He could be tough, like he could be hard, um, but he thought about you know societal issues, political issues, uh, and and he always treated everybody kind of the same way. Like what, no matter how senior or junior you were in the company, he treated you the same way. And he, and he was always a teacher. That's in everything he did that he was a teacher, and he was fiercely competitive. Uh, and and so that was my experience with Andy in the late nineties. Well, I have to say that Andy's been on the show a number of times, but my first experience with him, I was moderating a panel and I misspoke <laughs> about something related to Andy. And it was actually about geography or something and about Europe or Eastern Europe where he was from. And it's what when when you when when Andy Grove corrects you, that's first of all an experience. And then to do it in front of about twelve hundred people, who also included my mother. You know, <laughs> Afterwards, you know, she she and Andy are ta- both talking to me afterwards saying, you got that wrong. My mother's like, I can't believe it. We invested so much in your education. And Andy's like, I know, I can't believe she didn't. You know, like, I'm like, Does everybody get corrected this way? You know? Yes, we all got corrected. But by the way, the thing about Andy was that he held himself accountable to those same standards. So he never treated himself any differently. And what I always appreciated was that when he was wrong, which wasn't very often, but it did happen. He he always owned up to it, at least, you know, when I worked with him. And, and I think that was why he was such a powerful leader was, you know, he was, you know, he drove us all to be better, but he drove himself to be better as well. Well, Rob, this is such a pleasure. You know, you're always welcome on Tech Nation and I hope you come back and see us. Oh, thanks, Mara. It's been a pleasure and thank you for the opportunity to be here. My guest today is Robert Siegel. The book is The Brains and Brawn Company, How Leading Organizations Blend the Best of Digital and Physical. It's published by McGraw-Hill. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. It took COVID to bring the term cytokine storm to popular attention, yet they are present and serious in a number of medical conditions. Segan Therapeutics in San Diego is working on interventions in the face of cytokine storms. Jim Joyce is its CEO. Well, Jim, welcome back to Biotech Nation. Moira, it's wonderful wonderful to be on with you today. Now, some of the medical terms we've all become familiar with during the pandemic aren't just about the pandemic or about COVID. And included in that list is cytokine storm. What's a cytokine and what's the difference between a good one and a bad one? Too many and, uh, and just enough. Well, that, that's right. And that's a uh, pretty scary terminology, isn't it? Cytokine storm. But, but more of the cytokines, they're part of your natural immune response. Uh, and, and what happens in severe infections, and it's not just COVID-19. It, this is across the broad spectrum of viral infections, bacterial infections. From time to time, the immune system will over-respond to infection, and it'll flood the bloodstream with pro-inflammatory cytokines, which can cause 
uh, organ damage, tissue damage, and it can lead to death. So what you have are pro-inflammatory, which are not very good to begin with, but if you have a whole lot of them, then they become that storm that we've been hearing about. Right. They're, they're like the big bully in your, uh, your, for, with, of your immune system, where once they control infection, they, they kind of go out of control and, and start, start attacking the body. Now, besides COVID, what else could cause a cytokine storm? Well, it, it, they're primarily, a, the cytokine storm is primarily induced by a viral infection, bacterial infection, but it, but it can also be induced by other forms of injury and trauma. Well, for example, Moira, uh, the Spanish flu of 1918, a lot of deaths were associated with cytokine storm syndrome uh, and even the Ebola outbreak of 2014, of which we participated in, in my former company treating Ebola uh, with medical device technologies. Uh, that was a condition where cytokine storm syndrome was, was commonly associated with death. Now, what happens after the cytokine storm? I mean, what happens in your body? Well, the primary result of cytokine storm syndrome is usually tissue damage, organ damage, uh, and it's a matter of rebalancing the immune system, uh, which hopefully that occurs on itself with most patients, but oftentimes that doesn't, doesn't happen, uh, and it could lead to sepsis. Uh, the inflammatory cytokines that you see highly elevated in sepsis are very consistent with what you'll see in cytokine storm syndrome, and these are conditions that can lead to death. Now, the common element here, it seems like we either have bad actors, cytokines that are bad and we don't want them, or even good cytokines, but we have too many of them. And um, if I was just sort of a normal everyday person, I'd say, okay, so do you have a drug for this? And uh, uh, do you? What are you working on? Well, unfortunately, there are no, there are no drugs that can address cytokine storm syndrome. Uh, for the same reason, there's no drugs to to address sepsis, and that is there's too many different targets. It's not one specific target that a that a you know targeted drug could go after. You need to be able to quickly be able to modulate or rebalance this hyperactivation of, of cytokines that, that's occurring from the immune system, but not just have a rapid real-time impact on reducing pro-inflammatory cytokines, but also eliminating the source of inflammation, which you know could be COVID-19 virus or it could be a multitude of other viral or bacterial infections in most cases. So drugs are constantly being tested, Moira, but generally they're single target drugs. Uh, you see a drug against a cytokine called IL-6 or a drug to address TNF-alpha. They're, they're regularly tested, but uh, have not demonstrated the ability to provide clinical benefit in controlled studies. Our approach at Segan Therapeutics is to rapidly eliminate both the inflammatory cytokines in concert with eliminating the pathogen source, which in COVID-19 is, is the virus itself. 
Well, Moira, what we're doing is significantly different. Uh, we're focused on advancing blood purification therapeutics. And so in the case of treating cytokine storm syndrome, we've developed a device that can rapidly address inflammatory cytokines in concert with eliminating the pathogen sources of the inflammation, which are the virus itself in COVID-19. Uh, additionally, there are underlying toxins, uh, as well as particles that we call cytovesicles that previously haven't been targeted by other therapies. And these are actual large proteins that are transporting inflammatory cytokines and other inflammatory cargos throughout the bloodstream. Okay, so you're not developing a drug. What are you developing? Well, we're developing an advanced blood purification technology. So think about people that have end-stage renal disease, people with kidney failure. So it's, it's very similar uh, in theory to kidney dialysis treatment, where a patient's blood is circulated through a dialysis cartridge. Uh, the bloodstream turns over. The entire circulatory system passes through the device in a matter of 15, 15 minutes or so, depending on the size of the patient. And each turn of the circulatory system re removes small molecule toxins to assist the kidney in its function. In our case, we're removing much larger targets, inflammatory cytokines, uh, infectious viruses, bacterial toxins, and as I mentioned, uh, cytovesicles, which are actual um, vessels, you could say, that are transporting inflammatory cytokines throughout the circulatory systems. Now, we've been saying cytovesicles, and I have to say I hadn't heard that term before, but you guys, well, you created it. You invented it because it, it, there's a reason for that. There wasn't really a term yet for this whole group of inflammatory uh, proteins. That's correct. There hasn't previously been a term uh, that define these large proteins that were transporting inflammatory cytokines. And in fact, many researchers thought these particles a few years ago were just cellular debris with no biological function. And today, we know that these are transport mechanisms that, uh, that move various different cargoes throughout the body uh, and can underlie a variety of different disease conditions. But underlying life-threatening inflammatory conditions, what we now know is that these cytovesicles are transport mechanisms for inflammatory cargoes. You are in grave danger, basically, of losing your life if you're if in the aftermath of this storm. Um, what are you trying to do at that point? This is the intervention. You're, that is someone who would need one of these treatments? Well, that's correct. There, there's no time uh, to waste when you treat cytokine storm syndrome. And again, it's, it's very much like sepsis. You have to, in our belief, you have to rapidly address uh, and rebalance inflammatory cytokines in concert with eliminating the source of inflammation, which may be viral or bacterial. You know, I recall that this kind of a, of a therapeutic technique, this kind of a, a medical device, um, was included post 9-11 in, in the big BioShield initiative. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Moira, because I was very active on Capitol Hill and testified on the need for medical device countermeasures, specifically blood purification technologies, because the reality is it's not possible to align uh, 
post-exposure drug therapies with threats, um, and especially when you don't know what the emerging threat is going to be. Until there's an actual outbreak of a pathogen or a dissemination of a bioterror agent, you know, that's, until that occurs, you don't have a starting point to advance a drug development program. So we believe our vision has always been that you need medical devices, specifically blood purification technologies that have broad spectrum capabilities to address viral pathogens, bacterial toxins, but at the same time can inhibit the overproduction of inflammatory cytokines that cause severe infections. Now, this is a medical device, and it's so much quicker to get a medical device approved, studied and approved uh, with the FDA than a drug. We know that. We're talking a couple of years to instead of 12 to 15 for your typical drug, only one out of nine succeed in the drug phase. But that doesn't mean that you don't do studies. And um, tell us about, you know, for instance, your latest study, what you're what you're doing there. Moira, in regards to our studies, we've completed a series of in vitro studies which demonstrate the capabilities of our device to remove uh, therapeutic targets. So these include pro-inflammatory cytokines um, as well as viral pathogens, uh, bacterial toxins. Uh, we did a study that modeled the removal of cytovesicles that we, we spoke of earlier. Uh, and additionally, we have an interest in inflammatory conditions where there's inflammation that contributes to various forms of liver failure, including hepatic encephalopathy. And so in some cases, uh, we, we call that HE uh, as an acronym, but, um, but in certain cases, there's inflammation, which create, causes the blood-brain barrier, barrier to become very permeable, and it allows toxins that aren't being removed by the liver because of liver failure to move across the blood-brain barrier and can cause people to become comatose. And we believe uh, the use of our technology could be uh, extremely important in, in that indication as well. What causes HE? Well, it's, it's driven by liver failure. It can be acute forms of liver failure, chronic forms of liver failure. It's actually quite common in people with cirrhosis, uh, at least the lower grades, but there's four grades, and grade three and four are extremely severe. Uh, grade three, people generally aren't aware of their circumstances or situation. Uh, grade four is defined as a coma, and, and essentially your liver is not able to remove uh, toxins such as bilirubin, bile acids, ammonia, and it moves across the blood-brain barrier into the brain. So in our most recent study, we demonstrated the ability to simultaneously eliminate the presence of bile acid, bilirubin, and ammonia from, from human blood. So that was, a, that was a great study that validated uh, the capabilities of our device, not just to treat life-threatening inflammatory conditions such as sepsis, but also to move into other indications as well. And how long did it take to remove significant levels? Oh, in the case of in the case of bilirubin, we removed greater than eighty five percent in the very first hour. Well, some of these people were really looking for you at this point. How do we get rid of this? Well, we'll just remove it. Well, 
let, let's just say if you're a grade three or grade four hepatic encephalopathy patient, uh, your mortality rate, your 30-day mortality rate is, is upwards of almost 40%. So a very significant problem and a major unmet need in health. We were talking earlier about kidney failure and having to go in for dialysis. Many of those people are waiting for new kidneys. What about people who are waiting for new livers? Would this be helpful? We believe so, uh, especially for patients that are on the waiting list and they need a bridge to transplant. Unfortunately for many patients, they never get to the transplant. Uh, they die before the, an opportunity for the transplant occurs. So uh, a potential capability to bridge a patient to their transplant could be quite important. And we don't perform, the liver performs many, many different functions, but the, the basic function of removing toxins is something that we, we could be very effective at in our belief. What are we looking at in terms of approval? And do you have to get a different approval for every different kind of filter you put in this system? So Moira, the challenge for medical devices, the bar is somewhat lower. We have to demonstrate safety in health compromised individuals. And, and then we have to demonstrate efficacy uh, that our device is effective uh, in treating people in controlled studies. These, these are still significant challenges, but not the... Uh, I didn't mean to say you had an easy time of it. Jim. No, no, it's, it's <laughs> I, I, I understand. But, but for us, you know, our pathway is to demonstrate safety and then bridge our device into pivotal studies of, of different disease indications where there's an unmet need that needs to be filled. And these are large market conditions such as sepsis, but they're also smaller market conditions where the need is, is very significant, like hepatic encephalopathy, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, we are planning to file what's called an investigational device exemption uh, towards the end of this year that requests permission to initiate human studies. We anticipate the patient population uh, that will be required would be upwards of 10 to 12 subjects based on our historic interactions uh, with our review team at CDRH, which is the FDA division that we work through. Uh, and then we demonstrate, if we're successful in demonstrating that our technology is safe and well-tolerated, uh, then we'll leverage that safety study into pivotal studies for a variety of different indications, which might include sepsis or hepatic encephalopathy, you know, and a variety of other, other potential opportunities. Well, this is really fascinating stuff, Jim. You know, you're always welcome on Biotech Nation. I hope you come back and see us. Thanks. Oh, I'm so appreciative. Thank you, Moira. Jim Joyce is the CEO of Segan Therapeutics in San Diego. More information is available at SeganTherapeutics.com. That's Segan, S-I-G-Y-N, SeganTherapeutics.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. 
Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.